0: As we all know, that plan of God is not always a smooth road for His people, which of course is why we need His grace. His grace sustains us through those challenging times. Christ Himself faced challenging times. And if, in fact, Luke presents this, uh, uh, this encounter in Nazareth as typical of his ministry and, and even representative of his whole ministry uh, taken together, then Christ had a lifetime of challenge and even opposition. Last week, two people approached a woman on a sidewalk in New York City. Suddenly, they shoved her up against the side of the building where she was and uh, and participated in, in a blatant daytime attempt at robbery. It's thievery when it's done in secret. It's robbery when it's done and open right there on that sidewalk. She tried to resist, but one of them was able to pry her phone out of her hand. The other was able to wrench her purse from her shoulder. And she she heard them as they made their way off down the street laughing at her. Now in a way, that woman's predicament is a picture of the condition of fallen humanity everywhere. People are helpless against the powerful influences of sin that dominate this world. The main difference from that woman's experience and those of all the rest of us is that in our struggle against sin, there are no innocent victims. We are all willing participants and without excuse. To rescue people from that hopeless situation, God promised to send a savior. And here in Luke 4, if you would open your Bible there, In this passage, Jesus steps forward and presents himself to the world as the fulfillment of God's promise. He is the Savior God promised to send. And from this point on, embarks on his gospel mission. All who accept the benefits of what Christ has to offer, his saving work, though, also bear the responsibility to share the good news with others. That's the consistent message of the gospel accounts and even of the epistles. So here's the message we see in this representative passage of the ministry of Christ, that Jesus can set people free from sin. The responsibility that places upon all of us who accept Him as Savior, you must participate in gospel ministry, following the example of our Savior Himself. The gospel, of course, presents the answer that people need to hear. That very dilemma of hopelessness in sin. The gospel is the answer. In verses 14 and 15, God's spirit has a key role to play in this. We we saw this even last week in Christ's victory over temptation, that the spirit was guiding. He was uh, following the Spirit's help. And now here at the very beginning of his earthly public ministry, once again, Luke tells us he's following the Holy Spirit. What he does, and not just on this occasion, but throughout his ministry, all the miracles, everything he, he communicated Everything was done in the enabling grace through the Holy Spirit. Why is that important to us? Well, Just like last week when we saw that that gives us hope. If Jesus won victory over sin because he's God, how does that help us? If he won victory as a man with the help of the Holy Spirit, well, that's exactly where we are. And if Christ carried on his gospel ministry in the power that he has inherently as the Son of God, once again, that's, that's no example for us. We can't imitate who he is. But if he instead carried on his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit that same spirit he makes available to us. The spirit then provides the power of the gospel. So he came in verse 14. He returned in the power of the spirit, returned from the place of baptism and the place of his temptations. He returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went through all the surrounding country. I I think we are to understand that this occupied some weeks, if not months, of Christ's early ministry days. Luke compresses them all into these two verses. He'll have more to say about that period of time later, but first he wants to focus on Nazareth but we need to know this also in verse 15 that he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all here we have the holy spirit providing enabling grace like Christ you can depend on his help he can give you the ability to serve him he can give you the ability to speak the gospel, as he gave Christ such ability. He can also provide open doors. Jesus taught in the synagogues. There there were open doors to him. He could walk into any town or village and know that as a Jewish man, he had a right to speak in the synagogue. And those were open doors for him. We might not have an open door in synagogues in our day, but that's one of the few places where you can't just walk in and say what you know. There are open doors all around us. That is the reality of life. We can struggle to see them. We might struggle to enter those doors with any degree of boldness, but that's our fault. The open doors are available. Christ's ministry, then, is one of teaching in the synagogues. That's important as a summary of Christ's ministry. He was teaching. This was his ongoing characteristic. What's he teaching? Christ's ministry was word-centered. He started with the truth of Scripture and explained what the Bible means. He was teaching in their synagogues and being glorified by all. This is a general impression that we get from his uh, Galilean ministry Uh, because people loved to follow Christ. They loved to hear him. They certainly appreciated being the beneficiaries of his miracles that he performed. But the real heart of his ministry is the word. He's entrusted that same word to us. We do not come up short there. Christ did not have more books of the Bible than you have. It's the same Bible. Now we might wonder, what did he say on those occasions? In fact, Christ was in the synagogue a lot of times. And most of those times when we, when we hear any description about what happened in that synagogue, it's uh, some kind of an encounter. There's a, a man that's, uh, that, is, uh, that has an unclean spirit, and he speaks out, and he interrupts. And so we hear about that exchange. Or there's a man with a withered hand, and Christ asks him to stand, and he heals him on the spot. But have you ever realized that when it comes to what did Christ actually teach in the synagogue? We get no idea except in Nazareth. The one time where we get a little, and it's only a little, but we get a little glimpse of the content of what Christ had to say. How he taught in the synagogues. Well, if God's spirit provides the power of the gospel, verses 16 through 19, God's word provides the message of the gospel. And so when he came to Nazareth in verse 16, where he had been brought up, that factors into this story, uh, as was his custom, already he had a pattern of activity. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read as a, as a guest, as a, somebody from the home area, but he's been gone for a number of weeks. He's back, and he has something to say. Now, we know in later centuries, the, the, the Jewish synagogues developed a liturgy that on certain days they read certain passages from the law and the prophets and the wisdom literature, but we don't have any evidence that that had already developed here at this period of time in the first century. So if Christ stood up to read, he would already have instructed the attendant what scroll he wanted to bring out. I want Isaiah today. And so the attendant brought out the role of Isaiah. Christ unwound that role all the way to the passage he wanted to preach. That was his prerogative. He found his way to chapter 61 of Isaiah. And now we have Luke's rendering of Christ's translation of the Hebrew from Isaiah Chapter 61 verses one and two. So verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Let's pause there for a moment to realize Christ's ministry focused on the word. It is the word of God that is living and powerful. It is the word of God that can strike right to the heart of an individual, can expose the wrong thoughts, that can change lives. So he opened the Bible, and here's what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, See, this is not just Luke emphasizing the Spirit's role. Christ himself acknowledges it is the Spirit that is upon him. He says, he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at naught liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, I'm not really sure we're supposed to take these, each of these characterizations of the recipients of gospel ministry quite literally. As he's saying, I'm looking for people who are uh, financially destitute. They are included But as we see elsewhere, even in Christ's Sermon on the Mount, those who are poor are the ones who are poor in spirit. Those who are uh, outcasts uh, from God's face, from God's uh, uh, presence because of sin. Those who have no resources to change that circumstance. Proclaim liberty to the captives isn't limited just to those who are literally in prison at that moment, but refers to those who are enslaved by sin. Recovering of sight to the blind, it includes them. The blind can come to Christ and see, see the truth, trust Christ. But the blind here are also representative of those who are helpless, those who need grace. And those who are oppressed, those who are burdened, burdened by sin, all of these describe all people. The gospel here, as Christ presents it, as God has called me to the needy of this world. And to proclaim the truth to all of them. The year of the Lord's favor is the time when the when when Christ begins to fulfill God's promise. He said he would send a Savior. Well, he arrived some years before, but here is the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise, the one anointed by the Holy Spirit. To come, This setting at liberty is also uh, using a word that Scripture elsewhere uses for forgiveness of sin, release from sin. God's word then provides the, the message of the gospel, but verses 21 and 22 now show us that God's son provides the focus of the gospel. While all else is quiet, verse 20 tells us that he rolled up the scroll. And I picture Christ doing that deliberately. This is God's word he's handling. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now, for us, for somebody to go from a standing position to a seating position would indicate he's done. But the the, the audience that day knew exactly what it meant for him to sit down. He didn't resume his seat among them. He took his seat in front of them. And that was the position of a teacher. He has something to say. So as Luke tells us the uh, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him there is building up of anticipation what is he going to say and how we wish Luke had given us a full rendering of all that Christ said on that day all we get though is the introduction but it's enough It tells us all we need to know. He began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, here I am. It's me, the Savior, the anointed one, the promised one. And in Christ in so doing is designating himself as the focus of the gospel. That was true in his ministry. That is true in our ministry assignment as well. The word is the basis for the message. But the son is the focus of that message. He is the promised Messiah. With his arrival, the fulfillment has begun. Verse 22, Christ is also the model witness as an example for us. Verse 22 tells us that all spoke well of him, and I, I, it's not really clear to us at this point is the, is, the, is the group here, the crowd, are they kind of talking among themselves, a little elbow here and there, uh, isn't this good, isn't it amazing what he's saying? Uh, it, it seems to be a general positive consensus though. Uh, as they all spoke well of him, and they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Literally, the words of grace. Now, we can well imagine that that's a reference to Christ's manner of presentation. Gracious presentation but it also has to be referring to the content of what he said. What he said were words of grace, words that themselves offered the grace of God to people in need. It's not so clear what is meant by the last part of verse 22, where they all said, is this not Joseph's son? Now, we've already read through the rest of the passage. We know that this episode takes a turn here uh, in the wrong direction. Has that started already? Is not this Joseph's son? I mean, some wonder, did they ask that question out of derision? Is this Joseph's son? Who does he think he is? I don't think so. I don't think the attitude has shifted at this point. I think it was more like, this is Joseph's son. How about that? Some one of us, and he can speak this way. This is amazing. He's the anointed one. He's the fulfillment. And he's one of us. I think this is spoken in uh, uh, in pride. Wow, what what a great thing this is for us! Now, it might also be an indication about why, though Christ respond, will respond the way he will in the coming verses. More about that in a moment. But could this pride also include a sense of? Entitlement of, wow, we heard all the things he did in Capernaum. Uh, he must have really special things in store for us. After all, we're like family. Wow, what might he have uh, to give to us? And it's almost like they're entitled to special status, special benefits, Entitlement, that's actually quite a common misconception among the people of the world. Let's put that aside for a moment and just reflect before we go on on what we've seen already in this passage. The gospel presents the answer that people need to hear. Christ took it as his mission to tell people that message. To even point to himself as the answer. And in all of this, he is the example for all of his people. The people around us need to hear the gospel. Two weeks ago, I was visiting in one of our home groups. As, as you know, I, I do that when I, I, I have a turn once a month or so to teach here on Sunday evening, uh, sharing those opportunities with the other pastors. And then on the other weeks, I visit home groups, and it's a delightful opportunity. I, I, I look forward to it. Uh, two weeks ago, I was in a home group where one of our associate members shared a prayer request. He had been witnessing to one of his coworkers, and he was anticipating there was going to be another opportunity coming up this next week. And he said, would you please pray with me? Pray. So we did. We, we, we prayed uh, then as a group. We prayed that God would give him Wisdom and presenting the truth of the gospel. And we pray that God would open the heart of that young man and that he would trust Christ as Savior. Only God can do that. God's people can share, but only God's Spirit can save. And then later that week, we heard the news the young man had trusted Christ as Savior. Well, the, the, the one that was bearing the testimony, he rejoiced. The home group uh, rejoiced. Uh, it, it was thrilling to know that God had saved a soul and had used one of his people to do that. Now, we have no control over the result of sharing the gospel message. That's God's work. We can't make somebody to, uh, get saved. And when those instances where, uh, where some people try and maybe even think they see some results, it's generally not valid. We can't make people get saved. We can offer salvation. That's our responsibility To be watchful for those open doors that God will make available. To ask for God's grace to be bold as Christ was in just saying what's true and sharing the gospel. Now, as we might expect, and as we know from personal experience, confronting sinful people with biblical truth often provokes a negative response. There's just something about being told that you're sinful and you need to humble yourself and accept something as a gift that you can't earn yourself. It pretty much flies in the face of what people have come to assume about how God works. So it isn't surprising when we face a challenge. In fact, gospel ministry expects a challenge from people. Even as Christ does in, uh, in this account. So we continue in verse 23, and we're a little surprised, uh, having had this favorable response initially, we're a little surprised that Christ is the one that seems to take this in a negative direction. But we understand Christ could see beyond the nice words that they were saying about him. He could see the heart, and in those hearts, he could see Resistance. And that's why he chooses to confront that resistance as he does. Beginning in verse 23, he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. What did Christ done in Capernaum? Well, it was in Capernaum that he healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever, and then they brought sick people to him the rest of that day. He healed them all. It was in Capernaum that they let a man down through the roof uh, who was paralyzed. And in front of everybody there, Christ healed him. We'd like to see some of that and even more. That's what Christ is saying That they are thinking, and he's not guessing. We need to see some of that. We demand to see some of that. We think we deserve it. We see how those attitudes reflect what's typical among sinful people in our world. People have this imaginary balance that doesn't exist. This balance that, well, I've done some bad things. Yeah, I'll admit it. But I think I've done some good things too. And as long as I have more good things than bad things, and I think I do, I, I just reflected the preconceived notion of virtually every unsaved person then I think I'll be going to heaven. I think I'm okay in God's sight. And if I have a little more work to do, I can work harder. I think I'll be all right. In the face of those wrong preconceived ideas, the messenger of the gospel has to explain the realities. Some have said it this way, before you can see somebody get saved, You have to convince them that they're lost. And that uh, sometimes is not a welcome experience for the lost, if they think they're okay. So Christ starts to set things right. He says, all right, you've got this idea, but he says in verse 24, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, You are demanding. You're expecting. You think you deserve this. But the reality is salvation is a gift of grace. You don't deserve it. You have to accept it as a gift. Furthermore, you don't earn it through your effort. You have to simply receive it by faith, a transaction in which you get no credit. You are not a partner with God in salvation. He is doing all the giving. All you are doing is accepting that gift. That's Christ's point in verses 25 to 27 as he isolates two instances from Old Testament Jewish history that illustrate an important point. He says, in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, a time of great poverty and destitution when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine over all the land. We can imagine there would have been dozens, if not hundreds, of poor Jewish widows. And Elijah was sent to none of them. Well, we might have expected these Jewish widows, if anybody deserved help. But no, the point here isn't that anybody deserves it. God gives it. As a gift. Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. This is Gentile territory to a woman who was a widow. And he's got another instance in mind. He says in verse 27, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. He's choosing two successive, well-known Old Testament prophets. In the days of of the time of the prophet Elisha, none of them was cleansed. Dozens of lepers, of Jewish people, none of them were cleansed in that period of time. But only Naaman, the Syrian, another foreigner, and not just a foreigner, but an enemy foreigner, He's the captain of the army that so often attacked Israel. The message here is that salvation is obtained by faith. Humble submission in response to God's offer. And there aren't any that deserve it. This is regardless of what class of people you might be in. There is no privileged status available. A few months ago, I was on a flight heading home from Atlanta, and the man sitting next to me on the plane was in a very good mood. He had been away from home for two weeks, looking forward to getting back to his family here in Greenville. Uh, furthermore, it, it didn't discourage him when he had asked me, what do I do in Greenville? I told him I'm a pastor of a church. Oh, cool. I've got some questions I'd like to ask. Oh, all right. Well, We got about 30 minutes. Uh, let's, let's go. Uh, as our conversation turned to the gospel, he quickly interrupted and assured me that he's already saved But as our conversation continued, uh, he did tell me that he doesn't go to church anymore, hasn't for some time. And there are a few other comments that he made that confirmed to me, uh, it's not likely this man is born again. But he thinks he is. So I I realized I was going to need to kind of disabuse him of some of his uh, wrong ideas. So he told me his thinking is that God accepts people of all religions as long as they are sincere I said well that's a very nice thought it just happens to be wrong uh, let me show you some verses in the Bible that say Jesus is the only way of salvation oh you consider those but uh, he wasn't so sure Not really so sure then that the Bible is really that reliable. And he began to attack uh, the authority of Scripture, of all things. Uh, And as I tried to counter his arguments, I mean, we got into the Dead Sea Scrolls and a few other things. And as I was countering his uh, argument, trying to straighten out his thinking, he launched into a tirade, a long tirade. Of uh, complaints about what's wrong with people that take the Bible too seriously, and in particular, some, and he even said it this way some Baptist preachers. <laughs> now, it was about that moment that I sensed that the rest of the cabin had become very quiet. <laughs> we, we, we had an audience. And as, as I had opportunity now and then to interject something, but for the most part, he just was dominating from that point on. And until he noticed that I had gotten quiet and I was pretty much just looking ahead. And he quieted down and half apologized. He said, no, I didn't mean you. I meant other Baptist <laughs> preachers. Okay, I was glad for that little bit of reprieve there. But as we uh, as we arrived, and uh, he had settled down quite a bit, um, I, he assured me that he would, uh, I, I gave him my phone number. Uh, he didn't, never gave me his, so I can't follow up. But he assured me, he was going to call me, and we were going to have lunch and continue our conversation. And uh, even said that he would come to our church. I, I've watched, uh, I haven't seen him, maybe I, and I'm aware it could be today, but uh, he would know. Uh, I I am concerned about him, and the gospel is the real issue here. But as I as the plane uh, arrived and I stood up into the aisle, waiting to get off, I thought. Well, I I was thinking at that moment what I think would be typical of all of us, I don't ever want to go through that experience again. (laughs) That was rough. And I started to wonder, why, what impact is this going to have? What do all these people think? And then to my surprise, the woman standing a little bit ahead of me turned around and said, did I hear you say you're a Baptist pastor? I said, yes. Yes. What church is that, she said. We might be interested. And I thought, kind of a closed door, but there's an open door right there as well. All right, there's God's plan. Christ is telling the people in Nazareth what they don't want to hear, but they have to hear How did they respond that day? Well, it's important from Christ's example that we as the messengers of the gospel accept it when people reject the gospel. It's not an unusual circumstance. In fact, it's sadly, it is more often typical. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath how angry were they? Verse 29, they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built. We go to that hill on the Holy Land tour. It's called Precipice Hill. And it's an impressive area and a steep drop off into the valley below. Uh, and it's right there nearby the city of Jerusalem. They were trying to execute him, probably going to throw stones on top of him after they threw him down the cliff as a Jewish technique of execution. Well, the world may reproach you for trying to be a messenger of the gospel. And don't be surprised. We ought to expect that. But God can protect you. with the power of God, they cannot take your life before God is done and your assignment is complete. Christ's assignment was not yet complete. Well, what can he do? He's surrounded by this mob. Well, all he has to do in verse 30 is pass through their midst and he went away. I don't know how that worked. But I don't imagine Christ stooping down and hiding around and sneaking out. I picture him under God's protection, just let them continue on to Precipice Hill. I'm going this way. And somehow they don't even notice. But that he went away, the point there is, he went on to the next opportunity. Not discouraged by the negative response but quietly, confidently looking for the next one. That is the ministry of the gospel. That is the gospel in action. The two robbers that took that woman's things in New York City. As they ran away, the exhausted woman made a feeble attempt to chase them. You could see that in news reports of a video, surveillance camera they checked uh, in that neighborhood and and they show her trying to run after and then just exhausted, she kind of leaned over, catch her breath, And looked up and saw that she was standing right in front of a group of bystanders who had watched the whole thing and had let the two robbers run right by them. And you see in that video, which doesn't have any sound, but you see in that video, she stands up as if to say, why didn't you help me? Can you imagine at the judgment of God somebody that you know, someone you work with, someone you live near, looking across at you and asking, why didn't you help me? Why didn't you tell me? You know, God can give grace to be a witness. We all need that grace. Christ, no doubt, found it challenging to be rejected. But he found that the Spirit's help was enough to go on to the next opportunity. Christ did it anyway. And he can help you do it anyway, despite the challenge that it includes. If you ask for his help, that same spirit can enable you to be a faithful messenger of the gospel. Let's bow for prayer and ask him to do that. Father, we are thankful for what Christ accomplished on that day in Nazareth. We thank you that he could in truth present himself as the fulfillment of your promise. Thank you that he went on to provide salvation through his death. We're also mindful, Father, of his example for us and this account of your word. We're mindful of our own inadequacy, of our weakness, of our fear. Thank you, Father, for the promise of your Spirit's help. Would you enable us through his work to carry on the work of Christ and the gospel message? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.